We are starting a new series called Vices, The Things That Hold Us. And um, this is a series where it's going to take us right up into Christmas time. And we're going to be looking at the seven capital vices together. And if you're sitting here thinking like, what in the world is that? Um, we're going to kind of unpack what that means. And if you don't know what that is, I, I, I just need to tell you, I completely understand. You know, in a lot of the reading that I was doing uh, as, as I prep for, you know, try to prep for these series and these things months ahead of time, and if I can get there months ahead of time, usually it's weeks or it's that week, but as we plan out further, it's been so much fun to read, and as I've been reading, these phrases keep coming up of the, the vices or the, how many of you have heard the phrase, the seven deadly sins before? Okay, yeah, so we, we have this. Now, I'll be honest, I grew up in a church where this stuff was never, ever talked about, and I mean, I heard something along the lines of seven deadly sins, but this is going to age me a little bit here, which is the only thing I remember from this is really, I think it was uh, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt in a movie called Seven. You know, and and if you're nodding your head with me, welcome to age, okay? This is, and you you might hurt a little this morning just from waking up. But uh, listen, the truth was I knew so little about this. I had no idea. And when I did hear about the seven deadly sins, it was usually used, or I never heard the phrase seven capital vices, but when I heard this phrase used, it was almost always used to talk about those Catholics who have these things to control you and to make you do and behave a certain way. And I just didn't understand. I really didn't. And like I said, I, I kept seeing these phrases over and over. And so... I've really spent the last couple of weeks diving into these seven deadly sins. Wait, that sounds bad. Um, Not, you know what I'm saying. I did not try to explore all the seven vices or, you know, (laughs) I began to read to try to understand about these vices. That's a little better, right? That's going to be a great clip that you can use at some point to, to... you know, cancel me. Um, actually, you probably have plenty of that. Uh, here's what's funny is, as I started to read about these vices, read about how they, they can take hold of us, it felt like something brand new to me, something that had never been talked about that, that was coming to light. And I got a little bit frustrated simply because I realized this conversation is a conversation that's been going on for about 1,600 years, and I, I kind of felt robbed. I, I kind of felt robbed, and, and the reason for that is I know that as we look at this over the next couple of weeks, for some of you, even though this is so old, this will be brand new to you, and, and I'm excited for you, and I, I hope that this helps bring freedom to your life, but for others of you, I know when you hear the phrase seven vices or capital vices, you, you are brought back to a time when maybe these were used to shame you. Maybe these were used to tell you um, the major issues in your life and to shame, you know, point you in a direction that was other than what God had for you. And I, I want to tell you the goal of this entire series is not to shame our church or any other church. It's not to make you feel bad about yourself in any way. The goal of this series is to help us discover why different vices that are are really common, 
Why, they can, why in the world do they continue to be so appealing to us? What is it about them that draws us in? And my hope is, is that we can expose them and, and see how they're powerful distortions of God-given desires. These gifts that God's given us, these vices can take and distort them. And now, I'll be honest, I'm not a very handy person. Uh, I'm not the one who's going to like build a shelf unless it's from Ikea with directions without words. And so, I'm not the most handy of people. But there is one area where I tend to say, all right, I'm going to get a little bit dirty here. And the reason that I say this is because I don't know that we understand the word vice very well. Now, if you, when we say vices here, you could see it's spelt with a C. Um, vices is also one of those things that we work with when you have a workbench, right? Have you ever seen a vice? Do you know what a vice does? Now, if you're over in Europe, they actually spell vice the same way, so we're just going to pretend we're British for a second with no accents, all right? Now, having a vice is important, and in my home, I use a vice for one reason. This shouldn't surprise you. For golf. Now, I know it's like, how does that affect your golf game? It really does a lot because when I play golf, I need to have some pretty solid grips. You know, I want to hold my club well and make sure that I can get a good swing on it. The issue is I have to change my grips because I fidget a lot. And so if I were to try to change my grip, I would now use a razor blade and try to come and, and, and get... It really wouldn't work the best, would it, if I didn't have this clamped. And what a vice does is a vice simply is a set of movable jaws, right? And what they do is they grip an item very securely. And so when this item is gripped securely, now... I can work on this as much as I want. It's not going to turn. It's not going to shift too much. I have full control because it's viced. And what vices do is they hold us. They hold us tightly. And too often, we start to try to fix the behaviors in our life and these bad habits that we may have when in reality, there's something else that holds us. There's something else that holds us. The problem for today is we don't use these terms, vices. We, we use the seven deadly sins phrase, but it's, it's not really a good phrase. And, and I want to tell you why it's not a good phrase, but it's going to take a, a couple minutes of story time. Are you cool with some story time? I love story time, and, and I love stories. So, you know... We got to a place calling these things by the wrong name, but it started really at the time of Jesus, about 200, 250 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. There was a group of Egyptians who decided to start following the life of Jesus as literally as they could. And so they became uh, this group of people who decided to fast regularly. They spent tons of time in silence and solitude. They took the passage where Jesus is being baptized, and then after he's baptized, where does he go? Go ahead and just give me something here. He goes to the desert. And so he goes to the desert for you know, a couple weeks, and, and what these uh, men and women would do is they would literally go into the desert. And... While they were there, they realized they started to connect with God a little bit differently, so they began to build small communities in the desert. These people became known as the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers. I mean, pretty good name, right? That's how they got it. 
Now, what's interesting is they began to live in community, even though it was outside of tons of people, they started to learn about each other. And this group, if you ever get a chance to like really learn about uh, the desert fathers and mothers, there are a couple of people that are pretty cool. This all starts out with a guy named Paul of Thebes. Um, he just looks awesome, doesn't he? Look at that beard. He actually looks really frustrated. I think I would too if I was the first of like, let's go spend years in the desert by ourselves. I don't know. They're like, good for you, man. But um, this group also included one of my favorite stories, a guy named Moses the Black. And Moses' story, no lie, you got to go read his story, I would tell you, but it's just too cool for me to ruin it. It's so awesome. There was also some amazing women. This is Ama Sarah that you'll see. Ama is a, uh, a word there that is representative of mother. And so she was actually um, one of the later desert mothers, and uh, she's got some great journals and uh, writings really about her struggle with the demon of lust and why she felt like the desert was the only place she could conquer that and how she dealt with that. But while these are just some notables, this story of the vices really starts with a guy named Evagrius. All right, say Evagrius with me. So I, you got it. Evagrius. Okay, you're learning some history here. This is Evagrius, and Evagrius of Pontus, he was one of the Egyptian fathers in the fourth century. And he spent the last 17 years of his life in this monastic, like a monk community in the desert. While he was there, he was known for listening to confession really well and listening to the problems of the people who were there. And as he listened to them, he started to see patterns in their life. He started to see the same things coming up across the board, and it became known, and he wrote these down as the eight thoughts. He had eight thoughts. There were things that kind of come into our brain that when you boil it all down, there's eight issues that we could have. All of sin comes from these eight thoughts. What I, I love here is Evagrius' pastoral heart for this community. He wanted to see people grow in Christ and he realized they were stuck. And instead of dealing with just the behaviors or the problems, he said, there's something deeper. What's this thought that's got you gripped? And so Evagrius defines these eight root issues. One of his disciples near the end of his life is a guy named John Cassian. And John Cassian, he went into the desert. He began to learn about these eight thoughts and has a really cool turban. Um, that's so awesome, right? He's got this down. Um, so here's what he did, which was cool. He took these eight thoughts, and he's like, this is good. But you know those people who could take what's a general idea, and then they organize it, and you're like, oh, that's even better. You know those people? Keep them close to you. They're amazing. He takes these eight thoughts, and he says, not only are these good, but I think there's, there's some wiggle room here that we have to organize them a little bit better. And so he puts them on this, this continuum from carnal vices, and then there are these, like, you know, carnal vices. This is gluttony or lust, things that affect the body. And then there's spiritual vices, things that affect us and our relationship with God, at which he would put pride all the way at the end, and he would say, this is the worst. And so as soon as he put this in a line, it became known at that point as the seven capital vices, capital being strongest, or the, the eight capital vices, the, the, the deepest things that we have to deal with. With the vices being laid out like this, everyone began to use this. All the communities, not just the, the, the monk communities, but all the churches began to use this 
continuum as a way of going through their confession to see if there was anything off, to see if it lined up so they could start to get to the roots. Everyone understood this. It stayed this way for about 200 years. After 200 years, the next biggest shift came from Pope Gregory I. Pope Gregory I. Um, now, here's what's cool about Pope Gregory. He was, he was a monk before he was pope, and he was deep into contemplative prayer. Like, if you like times of silence and solitude, he's your guy. If you tend to be so busy you don't want any of that, he's going to frustrate the garbage out of you when you read him. He leaned towards contemplative prayer. He also had this huge desire to live out and a, a vow of poverty. So he wanted almost nothing. And the first year that he became pope, if you read his writings, he's so great. He says, I hate my first year because it's stolen all of my time to pray. I just want to go back to those times of silence and solitude. And, and this is what he wanted. And before you write him off because I keep saying Pope and you're like, mm-mm, mm-mm, they're the worst. Listen, if you claim and you run in the, the Reformation age or Protestant, you, you use whatever term because if that's what you're going to feel, you're going to feel that anyway. One of the most influential theologians, uh, John Calvin, actually looks back to Pope Gregory or Gregory the Great. And he says, this could be one of the last and one of the most greatest popes that ever existed. And what he did was he took this list of eight. And because he was spending all this time in prayer, because he had this influence with people and he wasn't concerned with all the stuff, he started to see something a little bit different in these seven. And there was one that stood out more than all of the others. And he said, I don't know that this should fit in our continuum and we need to pull this out. And he pulled out what John Cassian said was the worst, pride. And he said, pride probably should not be included in this list. And the reason it shouldn't be included in this list is because pride in and of itself is the roots of all of our problems. And these other vices that come up and that we deal with really are just branches from this tree of pride. It will always go back to pride for us. And it stayed this way for about 600 years. 600 years, it's worked. It's how everybody walked through. Lastly, a man named Thomas Aquinas came along. And here he's known for, well, he's got that little pen in his hand. This dude wrote more than anybody that you could ever imagine. Uh, he's got a book called the Summa Theologica, and it's, it's just, it's like, actually not a book. It's like volumes of books. It's unreal. And um, he, he kind of came up with one new idea that shifted this a little bit. And he began to look at sins and he said, there are two types of sins. There are mortal sins and venial sins. Has anybody heard this before? Okay. Some of you have heard this. How many of you are like, what in the world is a venial? Okay, cool. Some of you, great. I, I'm with you. This was brand new language to me for, for a while. He basically said, here's mortal sins. Mortal sins are the sins that sever our spiritual life because they're sins against love. These are what cut us off from love. Venial sins, they like offended love, they wounded love, but they could lead a person into committing mortal sins, but they themselves weren't. And there was temporary punishment for venial sins. Here's, here's why this is important is because that language is still the same. In the Roman church, this language is used and has been used for the last 800 years 
about venial sins and mortal sins, and we believe that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we're not saying that there's any sin that keeps us from God, but still, because we change the wording, the problem is we lost the tool. We lost this great tool that everyone throughout history has been using to figure out what's the problem that I have? What are these issues? And when the Protestant reformers came along, they rejected all of this. They said, listen, this is no good because there's not venial and there's not more, like, no, 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 no. Just go to God by yourself, confess your sins and you'll be fine. Yes, but no, because you're never gonna deal with the root issues, the major, major things that happen in our life. And so as we walk through this series, this is one tool that I am so sad that we have lost as a church, as a, as a following of Jesus in our tradition, because we need this when it comes to confession with each other. Some sort of tool that we can line up with to say, how am I doing in this area? And at Crossbridge, I wanna say, I think it's time for us to rediscover what was lost. It's time for us to relook at this because I think too many of us have been spending time battling behaviors and habits when really it's some of the roots and branches we need to go after. I've met with too many people who say, this problem keeps coming up. I keep struggling with porn. I keep struggling with masturbation. I keep struggling with you know, this greed and getting more money. I keep struggling with being so pissed at everybody all the time and I don't know why. I keep struggling. I'm so mean to people. Oh, there's all these things we struggle with, but usually there's something deeper that needs to be addressed in our life. And so moving forward, when we look at this, I'm gonna do my best to refer to them as the seven capital vices. I'm gonna mess up at times and throw in deadly sins or whatever. So can you show me some grace as I try to reframe my language? All right, thank you. Um, thank you. But we're also gonna go with Pope Gregory and go back to what works so well with pride as our root and all the other vices branching from it. And if you don't know what those other vices are, here's where we're gonna go. Next week, we're gonna hit up envy. Then we're gonna talk about vainglory. That's a, a word that many of you probably are like, what the? Uh, then we're gonna hit up greed. And then lust, I'll tell you now, that's at the end of November. That's a PG-13 message already being written. So um, it's just, it's, it's a tough one. Then we'll deal with sloth, anger, and gluttony. And we did not put gluttony near Thanksgiving, okay? <laughs> we did not. But today, uh, I wanna look very simply and quickly at the root that Pope Gregory would say, and that is simply pride. We're not gonna unpack pride completely, and here's why. As we look at all these other vices, this is gonna keep coming up, okay? It's gonna keep coming up over and over and over, and so I do wanna make sure that we have a common idea of not just what grips us, but what tends to hold us in pride. And while, here's what's funky about pride. While all these other vices lead us away from God, Right? They, they have the potential to pull us away from God. Pride attempts to elevate us above God. While all of these other vices can pull us from God, pride is the biggest vice because it makes us think that we can be above God. This is like the OG of vices, all right? I'm serious. This root issue is so deep because it existed before the universe existed. 
It existed before the universe existed. Jesus himself, in his biography written by Dr. Luke, is with his disciples. And um, in, in chapter 10, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 10, there's this moment that Jesus says to these 72 disciples that he has, he says, listen, I need you to go out and prepare your, the way for me. You're going to go to some towns and, and you're going to cast out demons. You're going to heal people. And, and that's going to get it ready for when I come. And they're like, this is great. So they all go out and exactly what Jesus says happens. They do all these miracles. And then they turn, they come back, and when they come back to Jesus, they are hyped up. I mean, they are so pumped, they're freaking out. And in verse 17, it says this, it says, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them. I saw Satan fall like I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. I love how excited the disciples are. I just think it's awesome. Jesus, this is great. Even the demons are obeying us in your name. You know, when we say your name, they do what we ask. And Jesus isn't surprised. He's like, yeah, of course they do. But, but he says something in this moment I doubt they expected or we expect. And he just says, yeah, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What the heck does that mean? Why in the world... Would Jesus say this to his 72 that were so excited? He's not quoting, uh, you know, Elevation Worship song, you know, my testimony. I was almost going to ask if we could sing that because it'd be fun. And I was like, ah, but then I knew it would just derail and, and then we'd never sing it the same again. But when we sing those words together, this is where it's coming from, right? This is it. And, and Elevation stole their lyrics from Jesus, you know, it's a good way to go. But what Jesus says here is unreal. He, he says, first he says, I saw Satan. Oh, he, he reminds the disciples by saying, I saw Satan. He says, first thing you need to know is I was here before you were. I was here before the universe was. I know what's happening here. I existed and have always existed. And in that existence of eternity, in heaven, before the universe was created through him, I was. And, and whatever that was like, there was a moment that Jesus saw Satan fall. Just so we're on the same page, yes, Jesus absolutely believed in the devil. He believed in demons. He believed in angels who fell from heaven in rebellion. We call them unclean spirits. We call them demons. But these are angels who rejected God in heaven. And at Crossbridge, we believe like Jesus believed. We believe that these demons exist and they can cause issues in our life. And this is important because of what Jesus says next. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Why? You see, Satan is this amazing angelic being who has been created by God. And, and at one point, he rebelled against God. 
There's no one spot that you can go to in the Bible to read about this and all of a sudden, you know, explore it and say, oh, this is exactly where it's laid out. It's actually a couple different passages you'll get from Revelation and Ezekiel. Um, but one I would love to turn your attention to specifically is in the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. In chapter 14, in this passage, uh, you know, Isaiah's writing this prophecy and there's actually one king that he's targeting uh, when he's writing, an earthly king in Babylon who's just a jerk. And what Isaiah is doing is writing something called a dual prophecy. It means something in the moment that it's happening at that, for that people, but also you see what's behind it. And, and it's not just meant for that king, but it's also meant for another rebellious king behind the king of Babylon who's in control here. This prince, this king of the world, Satan. And, and here's what Isaiah says. He says, how you are fallen from heaven. O oh, shining star, son of the morning. That's the reference to, this, to, to uh, the enemy here. He says, you have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountains of God's far away in the north. And I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high God. The power of pride here, you see it very clearly in verses 13 and 14. You can underline this in your Bible, highlight it where, wherever you are. It, it starts with, I will. I will do these things. I will ascend to heaven and I'm gonna be above God. I will preside on the mountain. I wanna be in charge of the gods, right? I will climb up to wherever you are. I'm, a, I'm gonna be just like you. You see, Satan isn't happy about the role that God has given him. So he says, I want something new. I want something different. I don't know if he thought he deserved more, if he could handle more, or maybe if that God was withholding from him something, but whatever it was, pride was the root vice of this rebellion. I want more. And while all other vices lead us away from God, pride is the one that attempts to put us above God. And so what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 10, when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, you don't need to celebrate here because the demons submit to you. You need to celebrate because your name is written in heaven. It's not about their submission. And that's true. But let's rejoice because God knows your name. God knows your name. And you could do all sorts of cool things in my name, but your name is known in heaven. Your name is known by God. You have value because of that, because of who you are, not because of the things that you've done. And the demons will flee. Yes, but not at your name, at his name. It's not about what you've done. It's about who you are. And God knows that. And I think the enemy knows that pride has this way of gripping our hearts and our lives and that all the other vices that we could deal with, these seven other capital, major, big issues stem from pride. And so I do think if he can get us to wonder and to question God just like he did, he can sow his seeds of pride into our life. And we can watch it take root and grip us. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows because this is the very way that we see him introduced to humanity. After God has created all things in his image and through him, just like we sang in that hymn, oh, praise his name. You see, the enemy was craftier 
than any other animals. The serpent it also, uh, you know, it's funky. Uh, actually, let's just look at it. Let's look at it. In Genesis chapter three, we've got two humans who exist created in God's image, Adam and Eve. There's two trees, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You have access to everything, just don't eat from the tree with the knowledge, right? And watch how pride takes this. The serpent, um, the Hebrew word here also could be dragon, which I just think is so fun. So let's just keep that in mind. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Just the phrasing of this question is setting Eve up to question God, isn't it? I mean, did, did God really say? When you add the word really into a question, you know something's up, right? Did you really brush your teeth this morning? Come on, you said that one, right? What did your boss really want to talk to you about? Did mom and dad really mean be home at 11? What's this dragon or serpent doing? He's tilling the soil. He's getting it ready. He's looking for a place to drop the seed of pride. And Eve answers him because I guess talking to animals who talk to you like they're Narnia is normal in the garden, but maybe that'll be part of heaven. How cool would that be? That'd be pretty cool. I just don't want to know what my dog thinks. Um, it continues. He says, she says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. She's adding extra rules here. You see that? She's adding extra rules to what God never really said. He never said, don't touch it and you'll die. But in this moment, the serpent the, the serpent has dropped a seed of pride. Did God really say? And she extends on it. And so here is where he drops it. He says, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Do you see what he did here? Well, all the other vices lead us away from God. Pride leads us to want to be above God. And the serpent plants the idea, God has been withholding from you. He said you could have access to anything, yeah? The tree wasn't something she feared. She just obeyed God. She had the right to go there, but she never did until pride came that maybe, maybe God is withholding from me. Maybe God isn't providing enough for me. And so the woman was convinced, it says. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, like there's not other good-looking delicious fruit trees in the garden. And she wanted the wisdom it could give her, even though she's not needed any more wisdom up to this point, right? She just wanted it. So she took some of the fruit, she ate it, and then she gave it to her husband who was with her. He ate it too, and at that moment, their eyes were open, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. In the garden where there was only one simple rule to follow, the enemy plants a seed of pride that can grow into a tree that begins to take root in their lives. And Adam and Eve both are become a hot mess with this vice or tree of pride. Their family tree, oh, it's just, uh, it's disgusting. You see nothing but envy, vainglory, greed, lust. You see sloth, anger, and gluttony. The fruit of all of those limbs and branches became lying, murder, cheating, adultery, favoritism, and a host of other sins. 
And they need to tell you this morning, please hear me. Let me see your eyes if you're here. And if you're online, the enemy has not changed his tactics at all. His goal is to get you and me to question, did God really say? Did God really say? So that pride could take its root. And let me tell you something about pride. Pride is like a shapeshifter. If you try to fight pride, um, sometimes it's, it looks so different for you than it would for somebody else. Uh, the best way to describe it, uh, any Harry Potter fans? You can admit it in Crossbridge, it's okay. Um, it's okay, I'm a Gryffindor, you there. Uh, listen, uh, it's like a boggart in Harry Potter. Boggart is simply like this creature that no one knows exactly what it looks like because it always takes on the form of whatever the person looking at it fears most. And so it could look completely different. And pride has this way of manifesting itself in our lives and taking root in our lives and looking completely different. And usually it's like polar opposites. And they're usually rooted around the idea of when, when, like when we succeed at something and others fail, pride shows up with this building up of ourselves. We begin self-exaltation self-promotion, self-justification, right? Self-exaltation, we, we take credit for the good things that are happening. We try to promote ourselves to say, look, look at the things that I've done. And the point of self-promotion is to celebrate the self-exaltation so that not just we are elevating ourselves, but we're elevating ourselves for the purpose of getting others to join in to say, wow, you are awesome. Look at you. And so it's drawing attention to us and, and self-justification, this one's funny because this has everything to do with drawing attention back to ourselves, but this one comes and throws a big party at the expense of when others fail. And others' failures become central to our successes. They're elevated just as much. But for others, it has pride comes through and roots itself in an opposite way when others succeed and we fail, pride has a way of rooting itself into tearing us down so deeply. And what happens is, when others succeed and we fail, we experience self-degradation, self-demolition, self-condemnation, and we begin to look at ourselves and draw attention, and we beat the garbage out of ourselves. And you're like, how could that be pride? Where's our attention? It's drawn to us and how bad we are. And, and self-demolition, when I say that, what I mean is we can begin to really harm ourselves and believe lies, but then we start to compare that to the people around us and not, not celebrate, but we try to highlight how we have it worse. We've done a worse job. I have it in a much different way than you, and, and no, mine's worse and deeper and harder. And self-condemnation is to the point where our eyes are on us and we begin to believe the lies that happen over and over. And you're like, how could that be pride? Because pride puts our eyes on one thing, ourself. How often do you think about you? Pride puts our eyes on us. And if we want to solve this problem and begin to loosen the vice, the reality is 
we might have a worship issue because pride is a worship issue. We can't think more, we can't think about ourselves less unless we think of something else more. If you are the focus of your life and you are the center, this is pride. This is sin. This doesn't just separate us from God. It makes us think we're better than him. And the only way to solve and to root up this problem is through humility of stepping back saying, I'm not nearly as important as I think I am. God, you are more important. My issues that I want to beat myself up with We just sang it. God, you can make those good. You can redeem those things. I'm not not a lost cause because you continue to be good. We need to replace ourselves at the center with Christ who deserves the worship. When we do that, the enemy starts to lose his ground. And so my question for you as we step in to these seven is simply, who's at the center? What behaviors are you so frustrated with that you're thinking, I just can't get over this issue? Maybe that's not the issue. Maybe it's something else that's deeper. Would you join me for the next seven weeks to go through this together in hopes that maybe, just maybe, the joy that God has given you to celebrate in a full garden would not be robbed because the enemy has stolen and said, God didn't really want that for you. This is about releasing the hold that these vices have on us so that we can worship. And at Crossbridge, I'm excited to always close in communion. And we put communion at the front and center because this is where Christ should be. And so this morning, we celebrate communion. We receive communion together as an act of worship, as a next step in our faith, understanding We need you at the center of our community and we come together through the aisles up front and if you're joining us online, I would love for you to have communion with you. But we join around a table looking at each other with this at the center, the body and the blood of Christ. Our eyes are not meant to judge each other and each other's sins, but to invite each other to Jesus. This tool is for freedom not for condemnation because Christ has come to set us free. And when he was with his disciples celebrating Passover where God just completely centers the Exodus story of saying, I could take you out of slavery and bring you into freedom. It may take a little while because you're stubborn sometimes, but I'll get you there. Jesus Christ, the son of God, gave his life up for us. And there is no way you'll ever battle pride without understanding who Jesus is, without accepting him and his teachings, without following him and saying, I I give up, I can't do this. I'm stuck. Where does your worship go to? If you don't know Jesus, I wanna invite you to know him just right now before we celebrate communion and just, if this is where you are, just real quick, 
Let's all just bow our heads together. You can hold your hands out. And in the recess of your heart, however you want to pray this, you pray your own words, but Jesus, I need you. I wish you would be the center of my life. I believe that you are the Son of God. You lived a perfect life. You died for my sin. You rose again to conquer death so that the enemy would not have power over me. Help me find freedom, Jesus, through your cross, through your blood. I want to follow you, Jesus. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Help me walk towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior and you've pursued him, we want to invite you to celebrate communion. If you have not and you're wrestling through things, you just hang back. It's okay. Don't worry about celebrating communion. Actually, please don't. This is for us together. And as you come, if there's anything that's heavy on your heart with pride that you feel like you need to confess, that you need to get out, find someone you trust and just get that out real quick and ask them to pray for you. And if it's weird and you're like, ah, it's funky, okay. We're here for you. We're here for each other. Let's celebrate communion. Would you stand with me?